0: Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. There's been a lot of debate and discussion surrounding taxation on social media recently. For example, when Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim announced that the T20 income group will not benefit from electricity subsidies and hard financial assistance, some people cried foul, saying that the T20 already pay the highest taxes, so surely they deserve the highest subsidies from the government too. Now, similar conversations also took place when the government made the 2% tax cuts for the M40 and increased um, tax rates for the relatively high income earners by 0.5% when he announced the budget. Now, many wondered why high income earners should pay more taxes in the first place. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. What's the function of taxation and how can we expand the common good? So joining me on the show today to discuss this is Eng Zifong. He's a research officer at REFSA. Welcome to the show, Zifong. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Before we discuss taxation, I think it's important to talk about our economic model, how society is structured and who holds the most power within this structure. Could you paint a picture for us?
1: Well, let's go from the top down approach. Mm -hmm. Malaysia has a mixed economic system which includes a variety of private freedom combined with a centralized economic planning and government regulation. So let's go back to 1957. Malaysia has diversified its economy from one which was initially agrarian to one which plays host to a robust manufacturing and service sectors, which have propelled the country to become a leading exporter of uh, things such as electrical appliances, parts and components. Malaysia is also one of the most open economies in the world, with a trade-to-GDP ratio averaging 130% since 2010. Malaysia's openness to trade and investment has been instrumental in employment creation and income growth, with about 40% of jobs in Malaysia linked to export activities. Malaysia has revised its national poverty line in 2020 after the COVID-19 pandemic, so now 5.6% of Malaysian households are currently living in absolute poverty. The government is focused on addressing the well-being of the poorest 40% of the population, or so we coined it as B40. This low-income group is particularly vulnerable to economic shocks, as well as increases in cost of living and uh, increasing financial obligations. So Malaysia's near-term economic outlook will be more dependent than usual on government measures to sustain private sector activity as the shock of COVID-19 reduces the export-led growth. Over the longer term, as Malaysia converges with high income economies, incremental growth will be seen, and we need to focus more on raising productivity to sustain higher potential growth. So while significant, Malaysia's productivity growth over the past 25 years has been below that of several global and regional comparators. To put it simply, Malaysia has not punched above its weight. So ongoing reform efforts to tackle key structural constraints will be vital to support and sustain Malaysia's economic growth.
0: Right. When you talk about the structures in society, would it be fair to say that, you know, in, let's say, an economy like Malaysia, we have the business class, we are talking about the big conglomerates, the big businesses, the MNCs, so on and so forth. Then you have the wage earners, small businesses, and then you have a government there. Would you say that that is a pretty apt description of how society is structured in that sense?
1: Yeah, to put it bluntly, yeah, there is essentially a hierarchy of how society is structured.
0: So, with all of that in mind, what is taxation and what is its function?
1: Right, Ashwin. So, taxes are charges that are imposed by governments on peoples and businesses. Uh, its main purpose is to raise finance for government spending, which is on public goods, married goods, administration, welfare benefits, and subsidies, as well as the common good, as we will discuss later. The revenue from taxation is also used to reduce inequalities in the distribution of income. Darshan, there are actually two types of taxes, which are progressive and regressive in nature. So taxation is not inherently progressive. It also has its regressive taxes. Uh, So progressive taxes are such as uh, income tax, in which when income rises, the proportion of the total paid in taxes increases. And we also have regressive taxes, which are value-added taxes on the retail sales. Of many goods and services, in which, that, as income rises, the proportion of total paid in taxes falls.
0: I'm very glad you you framed it that way, um, because a lot of what we're going to be discussing today is going to be focused around progressive taxation. So. There's been plenty of chatter around income tax since Prime Minister took office, Prime Minister Anwar, um, especially because there's been some tweaks such as marginally reducing tax rates for M40 um, and increasing tax rates for the T20. So what exactly is income tax?
1: For income tax, uh, for Budget 2023, uh, the government has revised, uh, has lowered two percentage points for those earning 100,000 and below annually. And also... With those with higher earnings in the T20 group, it will be raised from 0.5% to 2%. So, that is the marginal, uh, marginal revising of the tax rate. So, income tax is actually tax which are imposed in annually on individuals, which receive income in respect of gains or profit from a business or employment. So, it is regulated by the Income Tax Act of 1967, which enforces the administration and collection of income tax. In Malaysia, the corporate income tax rate is 24% in general. So income tax on uh, personal individuals is on a progressive basis in which the rate is 0% on chargeable income, not exceeding 5,000 ringgit, and 30% on chargeable income exceeding 2 million. So we compare this to our geographical neighbor, Singapore, which offers the lowest individual tax rates in the world. Singapore tax residents are taxed at a progressive rate of 0% to 22%. Uh, I will get to more of the tax rates in different countries uh, further down as we we go along.
0: All right. So how does progressive income um, taxation contribute to wealth redistribution and reduce income inequality?
1: Progressive income taxation, um, it does contribute to reducing income inequality. In terms of uh, taxation and income transfers are directed to the poorest segment of society which is a best which is the best way to keep inequality in check and reduce poverty in the short term however these instruments are uh, particularly uh, appropriate where the benefits of growth fail to reach the poor but they are really too small to make a difference for example cash transfer pro- cash transfer programs are uh, are good at reducing poverty in the short term but it may not accelerate growth in any major way uh, except by giving them more resources and allowing them to survive in for, for a short term. So what I am of the opinion is that directly investing in opportunities for the B40 is essential. Transfers to the poor should not consist merely of cash. They should also boost people's capacity to generate income today and in the future. Education and training as well as access to healthcare, microcredit, water, energy and transportation are powerful instruments. For example, Let's say Malaysia has a free public transport system. It'll be very convenient for everyone. And it is very fair for people who are taking the public transport on the way to work or anywhere else. So social assistance is critical to prevent people from falling into poverty traps when these externalities hit.
0: I want to also talk about, let's say, countries like Sweden, because countries like Sweden have incredibly high income tax rates. What do they use the tax money for?
1: Let's frame Sweden as inside a group of Scandinavian countries. Right. So Scandinavian countries are generally well known for their broad social safety net and their public funding of services, such as universal health care, higher education, free scholarships, parental leave, and child and elderly care. So these will necessitate high levels of public spending, which requires high levels of taxation. Uh, In Denmark, Uh, According to the latest figures, Denmark's tax to GDP ratio was at 46.3%, Norway is 39.9%, and Sweden is at 42.8%. These Scandinavian countries tend to levy top personal income tax on the upper middle class as well, not just the high income taxpayers. For example, in Denmark, the statutory personal income tax rate of 55.9% applies to all income. As we can see, Scandinavian countries does provide a, pub, a broader scope of public services, such as uh, uh, universal healthcare and higher education, than more, so, more so than other countries. However, such programs will definitely require a much higher level of taxation, which is re- reflected in their tax-to-GDP ratios.
0: With that in mind, right, Um, earlier you mentioned how, let's say, a cash transfer, um, you know, when you tax people and then, you, let's say, you just do a cash transfer, that may not be very sustainable or may not even be enough to really transform people's lives. But you mentioned that, you know, public trans- free public transport, that would be great. Um, you know, people need to have access to good quality public health care, that would be great, good quality public education. Um. Do all these things come under the category of what some might call the common good?
1: Yes. So common goods are goods which are accessible to everybody. Uh, Common goods are defined as uh, institutions, facilities, constructions, etc. As long as it can be used by members of society and are not privately consumed by specific individuals, it is considered as a common good. So for common goods to be able to exist, uh, in most cases, payment of taxes is needed as common goods are socially beneficial and everyone is interested in satisfying some considered what we consider as basic necessities, such as transportation, as we've mentioned earlier. As the government is commonly the agent who drives the expenses to create common goods, the community must pay an amount in exchange to use these common goods. I think common good is um, more or less taken for granted in Malaysia. For example, we have roads and we have public transport, but we also have subsidized petrol majority of Malaysians do not know how we can maintain such low levels of pricing for public transport as well as for petroleum uh, in which they use. Uh, so these are things which are taken for granted on, on a daily basis. But looking at the macro picture, these subsidized items are actually paid for by government by government revenue. So for 2022, the government has allocated approximately 77.7 billion in subsidies to ease the rakia's cost of living. This includes a wide range of items and services such as uh, chicken, eggs, cooking flour, electricity and transport, which can can be considered as common good because it is accessible to everyone. So more or less, um, we need to know that, we need to understand that this comes from taxation and we should be more appreciative of taxation as a means of reducing income inequality.
0: So you, you talk about how it's a, you know, it's a method or means to um, reduce income inequality, which is, of course, a massive problem. It has become an even bigger problem today um, over the past 40 years. Productivity has increased, but income has stagnated, wages have stagnated. But then you know, people bring up this argument. There have been some arguments lately such as how people who pay more taxes – should be rewarded more, Um, they should get more subsidies than people who pay less taxes. How would you respond to this argument?
1: I think these arguments are confined in a bubble in itself, in which um, some people argue that I pay more, so I should be rewarded more because I contribute more to society. But it does go against the spirit of the income tax, which is meant to be progressive in nature. It is a redistributive means in which people who earn less pay less and people who earn more pay more. Progressive tax and transfer systems are, are also broadly supported by the general population as opposed to the current sentiment. So according to the recent World Value Survey by the World Bank, which covers a, re- a representative sample of populations in over 40 middle income countries, including Malaysia, these countries were up on a scale of 10, 0 to 10 how supportive they were of government taxing the rich and subsidizing the poor. So the figures have shown that across a diverse range of countries, including Malaysia again, most were supportive of progressivity with average scores ranging from 5 to 8 out of 10. These insights would suggest that policymakers should feel confident that they have popular support for tax reforms that increase progressivity.
0: What are we trying to achieve ultimately with progressive taxation? What is wrong, let's say, with with the, the world right now? What, what problems are there? And what are we trying to solve or achieve through progressive ex- taxation?
1: Progressive taxation is essentially a component of a much bigger picture. So progressive taxation is essentially what we use to ensure that the average income of all Malaysians all people in general who are facing progressive taxation systems are more or less equal although they might not be equal but the the disparity between them can be minimized right. so for example if you are earning less than 5000 you might not get uh income tax yet but if you are earning more than uh if you are earning more than 2 million you might get a 30% so we try to minimize the gap between uh these classes and with the money collected by taxation, we use them to fund uh, social safety nets. We use them to fund subsidies, which will benefit the public. For example, Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim has also said that if there's no subsidy, the inflation will increase by almost tenfold. So, this is the importance of taxation and its redistribution to society.
0: On the show with me today is Ng Zee Fong, Research Officer at REFSA. After the break, we discuss why is it so challenging to tax the rich. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan and on the show with me today is Ng Zee Fong, Research Officer at REFSA and we're talking about taxation. So Zee Fong... I think it's safe to say that things are straightforward in concept. The more you earn, the more you should contribute to the collective good of society. But I think there's a more interesting question about how the burden of tax is largely placed on working people. Because the thing is, the richest people in society, and I'm talking about the rich, the top 1% or the top 0.5%, they do not work per se, right? They don't get an income the way you and I do by going to work nine to five or whatever, and then getting a paycheck at the end of the month. They generate income by owning a lot of assets and by the stock market. If you go to work and get a salary, and I'm talking, doesn't matter if you're earning 5,000 ringgit a month or 50,000 ringgit a month, you will be imposed a tax, right? Which is fair, like we've already discussed. But if you have millions lying around you buy some shares, make a profit. Zufong, do you get taxed for that? Uh, these investments and the profits
1: it's, that it's generated are not taxed by, by the government. But instead, what we are earning is taxed by the government. So we do not have a wealth tax in Malaysia. And that is the problem because these people who are earning so much more from shares and whatnot are getting exponential increase in their, in, in their wealth. And to say that this is uh, unfair would be, would be correct because the government did not try to address these gaps in, in the investment structure.
0: So on that note, what are the limitations or criticisms of relying solely on income tax to address wealth disparities?
1: I think a well and post-wealth tax would be a powerful tool to restore progressivity, um, in especially in Malaysian income and wealth distribution it will increase the tax rate of the wealthy people who can currently escape the progressive income taxation by realizing uh, little income relative to the true economic income. So uh, by imposing a wealth tax, they will not be able to escape uh, what they are earning outside of government regulation. But the question is whether we should impose the wealth tax as a one-off or whether we should impose the wealth tax on an annual basis because imposing wealth tax one-off will be a short-term cure to whatever that we are facing now, having an annual wealth tax would definitely be a very burdensome on people. And this would bring up the argument again that I am earning more so and I have many assets. So why should I be the one who bears the brunt of paying for your services?
0: Burdensome, how? Because if you're talking about people who the next seven generations are set for life, how is it a burden? if we tax them exponentially? I think it's
1: human nature that we tend to accumulate a lot of wealth. So it is essentially not enough wealth. We we, we will think that we will forever will not have enough wealth. So for you to even tax, let's say 20% out of the wealth tax, uh, out of the wealth in general, will be very damaging to them, uh, not economically, but maybe psychologically. Because, their position is that these are my money and it's my prerogative to use this money as I see fit. So why should I be the one? Even though I'm set percent of seven generations, why should I be the one to, to pay for every, what everyone is using?
0: So what lessons can we learn from the most progressive countries? And, I'm, and by progressive, I mean countries with the lowest inequality with regard to the topic at hand. Let's take the lowest inequality
1: country, for example, which is uh, Slovenia. Slovenia has the lowest Gini coefficient. Gini coefficient is essentially the indicator for income inequality. So it has the lowest indicator of income inequality uh, among the OECD countries. So it ranges from from between 0.23 to 0.27 for most of the last three decades. So the closer it is to zero, the the higher the the higher the wealth equality in the country. So the comparative equality of uh, the Slovenian society is mostly a reflection of the social transfers and pension systems, since without them, the inequality will be considerably higher. Slovenia did not just get into low inequality status just because of its taxation system. Mm -hmm. So, for example, for personal income tax, they have a net average tax rate of 33.6% in 2022, which is also higher than what Malaysia is having. So it is significantly higher. So, but what differs them from Malaysia is that they do, the government does redistribute this uh, revenue from taxation into the social security system. And this greatly helps uh, people who are facing poverty to pass the
0: poverty line and reduces inequality. So what are the challenges um, faced by a lot of governments when it comes to taxing the rich? And I mean, the real rich their economic and political power, which is usually
1: allocated to rich taxpayers, often allows them to lobby for lobby to prevent fiscal reforms, which will increase their tax burdens. So for example, uh for example, when we see the minimum wage, when we try to increase the minimum wage, big companies will say like, oh, we are we are no longer uh, wanting to invest in Malaysia or we will no longer be opening in Malaysia because the, the price of uh doing business is so high. So these companies have the position to lobby and also to force the government to not, not exploit uh, the progressive income tax satisfactory.
0: On top of that, another argument is also that higher taxation, um, especially on the wealthy, will stifle economic growth and innovation. How do you see this?
1: This is one of the common arguments against the uh, Potential negative economic impacts, such as uh, they would say, there would be a decrease in innovation because even if we uh, even if we do innovate something, it would still be taxed from us. However, the the increased savings from the rest of the population and the government would potentially offset um, this effect. In, in terms of this, most innovation you need to know that it is produced by young but not wealthy individuals. Indeed, the wealthy tend to be much older than the average, but the ones who are innovating are, are the young people who will not be impacted by the high exemption wealth tax. As we can see a lot of businesses, they're opened by young people who are having entrepreneurial minds. So these are the people who, even though you impose taxes on the wealthy, it will not affect them because they are just starting out, but it just happens like their business has hit a trajectory where they're going upwards.
0: I'm really glad you brought that up because it's not just the age factor, right? Um, the rich like to talk about how taxing the rich will stifle innovation. But the reality is that there is a difference between those who innovate and those who own these innovations. Take the vaccines, for example. The real innovators are the scientists, researchers, medical professionals, R and people, hundreds, maybe thousands of people who slogged day in, day out in science labs. You probably don't even know their names. They are not the rich. The rich are people who own the vaccines and the companies. They are the people who placed patents on the vaccines, and told poor countries that if you can't afford the vaccines, we're not going to give it to you, although we have abundance, although we have more than enough. They would rather let people die to protect their IP and profits than share. These are not innovators. These are people who own what's being innovated. I mean, of course, owners and innovators aren't always mutually exclusive. I I think they can be the same person, and, and so on and so forth. But I don't think people think about this distinction or draw this distinction enough.
1: Definitely agree because most of this, like you said, it's about owning the innovation and not actually doing the innovation. So stifling innovation will not, it will not happen because companies still need to make profits. Although they are taxed for their profits. So even though you you can impose a wealth tax on them, but they will still make more profits than the rest of the population but the ones who are doing innovation are the ones who are holed up in the lab. And those who are researching, those who are uh, uh, putting in the hours, they are not the ones who are recognized, but instead the company is recognized. So to say it stifles innovation, this this is a very subjective matter. Companies will say that it will stifle my innovation, but nevertheless, I will still continue to innovate because if I innovate, then I will make profits, even though there is a wealth tax being
0: imposed. Now, on the flip side, I just thought of another example to counter the whole profits are the only thing that motivates people to innovate, right? The polio vaccine was invented by Dr. Albert Sabin. Um, He co-founded the Chiron Corporation. So he's also an owner and an innovator and all of that. But what's interesting, right? He did not patent the vaccine because he believed that vaccines were a public good and should be made accessible to everyone without financial barriers so he did not invent this vaccine because he thought it would make him get rich or he didn't and he wasn't thinking about maximizing profits or, or, or protecting his wealth or growing his wealth there was a problem he innovated to solve the problem. I, I think that's how innovation works. But I think you bring up a very real problem earlier when you talked about this this race to the bottom, especially happening in the global south, especially when we look at Southeast Asian countries, right? Because the reason, like you, you mentioned, is so difficult for governments to just come. Like Even if we have, I, I think even... Um, you know, the chief of Party Socialist Malaysia, even he has come out and said, let's say even if we have a socialist government today, it's not like we can just come and say, okay, we're going to increase corporate taxes to 40% it just won't work because all the big businesses will say okay then i'm just going to bounce to vietnam i'm just going to bounce to indonesia i'm just going to go to cambodia and so on and so forth and so what's happening in in southeast asian countries is is a sort of race to the bottom right oh you, though this country is lowering their taxes don't go there come here we will lower it lower it even more and and that's how they compete for fdis so i'm wondering what are your thoughts on international tax cooperation and its Potential impact on global equity. For example, ASEAN countries coming together and say and, and together and they decide, okay, every year, all of us together, whether you're Cambodia, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, we will all increase our corporate tax rates. I'm just using corporate tax rates as an example by a certain percentage, right? Could this help prevent and fight against the, the whole idea of capital flight?
1: Yes, that's right. Um- Having an international tax corporation would definitely be beneficial to prevent capital flight. So uh, I give an example of uh, the OECD. So the OECD has introduced the base erosion and profit shifting, uh, or BEPS. As an international taxation standard, uh, the plan consists of 15 actions to address these issues. So Malaysia, in particular, in principle, has committed to implement and adhere to this OECD standard. Under this commitment, Malaysia has officially joined the OECD inclusive framework, the OECD-IF, on the base erosion and profit shifting as a member. So one of the key action in which I would like to point out is that Malaysia is committed to countering harmful tax practices more effectively, and in which the identification of low preferential rates, low preferential corporate tax rates, or so we call as preferential regimes, which can be categorized as harmful tax practices, it will not be possible. So, it focuses on improving transparency through the exchange of information on tax matters and the requirement of substantial activities for any preferential regimes. So, Malaysia does adhere to this international tax cooperation and Malaysia is committed to ensure that there is no capital flight from uh, Malaysia to other countries.
0: Just to reinforce, I think, a point that you brought up earlier, how would you respond to people who say, it's not that I don't want to pay taxes, it's that I'm looking around and I don't see where my tax money is being used properly. Um, and I think in Malaysia especially, there's a lot of of this weariness, uh, you know, weariness towards government, regardless of who the government is, because of, let's say, the past um, more than 10 years or 15 years of our history, um, where we t- look at, let's say, the, the corruption scandals and and so on and so forth?
1: We do have a conception that the taxpayers' money is not being used effectively. For example, it's just been given out as cash transfers, or maybe it's just being used to subsidize uh, things at a very low level. But um, the new government has committed to revise the subsidy framework in which it will introduce targeted subsidies. Although it has not been implemented yet, but it is still in discussion. So the government will impose targeted subsidies on certain social economic groups. So this will be a much better use of taxpayers' money because it gives the people who really need it the most. And the government uh, recently has said something about electricity tariffs in which the T20 would need to pay and they will not be subsidised. So these are the ways that the, the government is trying to change costs in order to make our taxpayer money more e- efficient.
0: All right. Before we wrap the conversation up, Zifong, would you have a final message or some final thoughts on taxation and, and the importance of progressive taxation?
1: I would say there is not really any problem with our progressive taxation method, but more importantly is that how are we going to use the money that we have obtained from this, uh, from the taxation regime? So, as I've pointed out earlier, I think most of what we need to see is is that the government to invest this on healthcare, education, in order to to future proof of Malaysians, um, so that we have access to all these basic necessities and we do not have to, queue up at private hospitals or maybe pay international schools for very high amounts of money for the same qualification. So these are what government needs to achieve in that it needs to secure the welfare of the people.
0: On that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Dasheran. That was Aung Fong. He's a research officer at the think tank REFSA. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple, or pretty much where we get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box podcast and subscribe to us. Also, in light of the passing of legendary queen of rock and roll Tina Turner, the Night Shift boys will be paying tribute to her tonight on Back to Back a discography show. And tomorrow, they will be focusing on her breakout solo album. Both of these shows will also be repeated on Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app